A new chip war is emerging for energy independence. We're going to discuss on semi monolithic power and albumeral today. Q2 2023 revenue for on semi increased less than 1% year over year, but the earnings per share, which is the metric that matters most, has grown 26% year over year. And next quarter, Q3 of 2023, is expected to grow up to 93% year over year. Nick, please tell us why revenue for on semi grew such a small amount this quarter. Yeah, this looked like a very pedestrian, not very great quarter on the surface, Casey, but a lot going on just underneath the hood for on semi. And the reasons that we started investing in the stock are paying off right now. They're in the midst of making this transition where they're closing down non-core chip manufacturing and making this very rapid transition to electric vehicles, new energy grid infrastructure and such. So on semi now 80% exposed to automotive and industrial chips, over 50% auto, over one quarter industrial, and then the balance of that, everything else, things like 5G networks. So this company's made a big transition. And part of that transition is they closed down the old non-core chip making. They're opening up new silicon carbide manufacturing lines. So that's really been the story here. The company's still on track to hit $1 billion in silicon carbide sales this year. They're not ready to guide for 2024 yet, but CEO Hussein Okori said, expect significant growth next year again. So on semi, ST Microelectronics and Wolfspeed are emerging as the three big players in silicon carbide power chips. So what's the difference between these three companies? Why do we like on semi so much? We have past experience with this management team. So Elcori, the CEO and CFO, Thad Trent, who I had a chance to chat with a couple of months ago, used to manage Cypress Semiconductor before it was acquired by Infineon back in 2020. That's one reason we like their focus on return on invested capital. On Semi is an integrated device manufacturer. So they design chips and they manufacture them. And they have operations in the US, in Europe, in South Korea. And they're taking a very balanced approach across all three of those primary geographies and increasing production, but doing so in a way that will have an impact on the bottom line on profitability right now and then returning half of the resulting free cash flow to shareholders. Now, free cash flow is down this year and Q2 is basically nil, but that's because of this migration, this rapid migration to silicon carbide. The earnings still very positive, free cash flow in a down year, but the company still bridging that gap with cash on the balance sheet, getting some co-investment from some of its big customers, especially in the EV, electric vehicle space. And so, this one's shaping up to be a really solid long-term investment, in our opinion. Most of OnSemi's semiconductor business is in the power chip market. So chips that manage the power flow. However, they also have this intelligent sensing segment as well. And Nick can explain what the difference is in those two segments. Yeah, just a couple of quick examples here, Casey. First, 
OnSemi provides these slides directly on their website, onsemi.com, which is a fantastic resource, I think. If you're an engineer, you can order the parts directly from these schematics on the website. But if you're just trying to figure out how this stuff works, I think this is a great educational resource. So the first one here, the modern vehicle, including electric vehicles, you can see all of the different parts of a vehicle on semi provides parts to. And then on the second slide, this is a specific schematic for a traction inverter in an EV. And the chips that on semi fabs are shown in orange. So you can see their parts throughout a traction inverter and an EV. Highly complementary, if not competitive with companies like Texas Instruments and Monolithic Power, which we're going to talk about here in just a moment. A second example, moving over to the industrial side, where on makes sensors, uh, let's say for like manufacturing robotic arms, solar panels, they're a top supplier of inverters. If you're not sure what an inverter is, check out our last couple of videos on Enphase, actual energy grid applications. But going to one here specifically, here's a schematic for the machine vision module in a manufacturing robotic system. So again, shown in orange, all the different chips on semi supplies, of course, the power chips, but you can also see the sensing hub, the part of the module that actually handles the camera, the vision part of the system that allows the robot to see what's going on and react accordingly on that manufacturing line. You can see in this slide, intelligence sensing, 8% growth rate over the next four years, but intelligent power up to 16% over the next four years. And as it mentions in the slide, silicon carbide is going to be driving that growth on semi expects to have 35 to 40% of the market share in the silicon carbide space by 2027. So huge growth driver for this company. It's not just the growth rate, it's profitable growth. So can you tell us where this profitable growth is going to be coming from and the valuation for this company? Yeah, Casey, it's what on semi calls and often refers to as brownfield development. So they have all these existing fabs especially in the U.S., in Europe, and in South Korea. And what they're doing, they're revamping those for silicon carbide, which is a very different strategy from Wolfspeed, which is doing greenfield. Basically, Wolfspeed is building brand new fabs starting from zero. And so Wolfspeed loses a lot of money right now, and they have many years of losses ahead of them versus on semi right out the gate. They switch over that existing manufacturing line and they're profitable. And that's what we like over the next three to five years, as you keep alluding to here, is while that silicon carbide business ramps up very rapidly along similar lines as Wolfspeed, on semi actually raking in the cash along the way. So let's talk about the valuation. Specifically, let's talk about the reverse engineering of the current valuation of the stock. As we record this early Friday morning, August 4th, just about 100 bucks a share, which this has been a pretty big run up the last few weeks. This is now a $44 billion company, but this is basically what the market 
is implying right now with the share price of roughly $100. So we have gap earnings per share estimate of $5. That's our estimate for 2023. We're going to assume just 10% earnings per share growth in 2024 and 2025, and then just a 4.5% terminal growth rate after that. Using a 10% discount rate, that gets us to 100 bucks a share. Casey, this looks like a very easy hurdle for on semi. Yes, the stock price looks expensive right now. The earnings per share now well over 20. I think we're sitting at about a PE ratio of about 24 over the last 12 months. So I think there's going to be a lot of volatility in on semi going forward. But again, we're looking at this at least for at least over the next three to five years, if not much, much longer. And so for what we want, what we're looking for, a very reasonably valued stock. Let's move on to monolithic power. So monolithic power systems, it's a fabulous semiconductor company. They also focus on power-based solutions. So controlling the flow of power through their semiconductors. Some of the competitors for monolithic power, Texas Instruments, Analog Devices, On Semiconductor, which we just discussed, Infineon, NXP, and Renaissance. And this company has grown at a ludicrous speed here in the last few years, and it's starting to come back down to earth. And we're going to discuss why that's a good thing. Q2 revenue was down 4.3% year over year to $441 million. Earnings per share down 14% year over year. And on an adjusted basis, earnings per share were down 13% year over year. They have $940 million in cash and zero debt. So Casey, as you said, this company has a lot of competition, including on Semiconductor, which is really building itself as a power chip company. So is Monolithic Power. This company was built specifically from the ground up as a power chip company. And they do a really good job of making these power modules and continuously shrinking them down. So over time, chips have gotten bigger and more powerful. And now here in more recent years, we're starting to just get into the beginning phases of chiplet architecture. So there's more and more circuit board space being allocated for those chips and less space for the actual power module. And so monolithic power has done a fantastic job of shrinking down that power module while still increasing the performance over time, which has enabled it to grow so quickly. You can see that monolithic power has done well, even in industry downturns. In 2019, they were 16% above the market. All of this has come at great expense to one of their lead competitors, Texas Instruments which does a lot in power management chips and analog chips. Some of the end markets that this company plays in, storage and computing, enterprise data, automotive, industrial, communications, and then consumer products. And you can see they have over 4,000 products for these end markets. Yes. So, Casey, we're going to do a deeper dive into Texas Instruments and what concerns us about Texas Instruments a little bit later after earnings season quiets down a little bit. But moving to this next slide, you can see 
the serviceable addressable market expanding very rapidly for monolithic power and thus for Texas Instruments. But we have serious concerns about Texas Instruments' ability to maintain its market share going forward because of companies like monolithic power. So again, we'll talk about that later, but you can see the range of solutions monolithic power has server board level power solutions they have different parts of a circuit board highlighted where they provide power chips everything from the cpu to the memory to where the electricity actually flows into the circuit board itself data centers and then the actual racks where the computers where the servers are stacked inside of inside of the data center power chips for all of that automotive as well tons of sensors tons of mcus microcontrollers throughout a car all of them need power management communications devices satellites wi-fi systems at the end of the day the company's basically doubled its sales in the last two years alone so well above the industry it's gobbled up a ton of market share management actually sees revenue moderating from here and that is a good thing in their opinion and we actually agree with that. So the long-term goal, grow revenue about 20 to 25%. I don't know if they're going to be able to sustain that average going forward. I'm not sure, but it's a lofty and notable goal because 20 to 25% growth is definitely not what you're going to get out of Texas Instruments and probably not even on semi for that matter. Regarding the global footprint for monolithic power, as you probably noticed, there's a high concentration in China for their manufacturing partners, as well as their R&D facilities. And this is one risk that bears considering with investing in this company. The wafer packaging and assembly is highly reliant on China. Nick, maybe you can expound on that a little bit more and what risks need to be considered. Yes, Casey, this is an important point. We don't think the most important factor in our consideration of monolithic power, but an important one nonetheless. As you mentioned right off the bat, monolithic power is fabless. So they design the chips and then outsource the packaging and the final assembly of their power modules to third parties. And especially the final assembly is handled in China so the CEO and founder, Michael Singh, has said many of their end customers have been requesting diversification outside of China and monolithic power have been working to do that. They've signed some new agreements at the tail end of 2022, new wafer fab partner in Taiwan called Vanguard Semiconductor. So they've been putting in the work to do that. But I think as we talked about with Micron a few weeks ago and some of the craziness that they're dealing with in China, some of their memory chips getting banned, and then simultaneously, they're also having to invest <laughs> in packaging in China. It's a wild situation there that presents a potential risk. Of course, the geopolitical tensions between the US and China, not ideal. And so a company having a foot in both sides of the world right now can open the door for increased disruption from political players, which is not a great thing if you're an investor. 
let's do the reverse fair value estimate of monolithic power. The current share price is around $530. All right, Casey, by our estimate, we're looking at about $8.76 in gap earnings per share. And then on an adjusted basis, maybe almost $12. There's a pretty wide difference between these two. So we just took a blend of the two. And so using these assumptions, your fair value on gap is going to be lower than the adjusted, given the disparity between the two. But at any rate, we think what the market is expecting is earnings per share growth of 11% in 2024 and 2025, and 8% terminal growth rate thereafter. If you apply a 10% discount rate to that model, that gets you to roughly $500 to $600 per share, closer to 500 if you use GAP, $600, maybe even more than that if you're using adjusted earnings per share or free cash flow expectations for this company. So both of these companies are power chip companies. Which would you rather have in your portfolio, on-semi or monolithic power? If you skipped the on-semi fair value estimate or the monolithic power fair value estimate that I just rattled off, Please watch both of them and plug in your own assumptions and see what you get and try to figure out which growth rate assumptions are more reasonable. But in addition to other things, we actually like on semi. We think there's a pretty low bar for the company to hurdle in the next three to five years. We think it's a pretty great value. One of the other things that we like about on semiconductor is its in-house silicon carbide capabilities. A monolithic power, it's fabulous. So that gives it a bit of a asset light business model. And they are getting into silicon carbide as well, designing silicon carbide chips. But we really like on semiconductors fully integrated business model as well. We like what they're doing. So if we had to pick just one, which we are picking just one, we're not a believer in over-diversifying, our bet is on, on semiconductor. But monolithic power, certainly worth keeping tabs on and keeping track of because this is most definitely a new chip war emerging for, as you mentioned, Casey, energy independence. The world scrambling to look for ways to not rely so much on fossil fuels, which for many countries means importing fossil fuels. A lot of other ways you can generate electricity and both of these companies developing solutions for, for countries, for businesses, and even for consumers, for households to generate their own electricity. Okay, let's take a look at Albemarle. This company knocked it out of the park with their most recent earnings. Net sales were just over $2.3 billion, which was a 60% year-over-year increase. Earnings per share, $5.52. Again, a 60% increase year-over-year. Year. And on an adjusted basis, $7.33 per share, which is 112% year-over-year year increase. Nick, what happened this last quarter? Okay, folks, check out our last video on Albemarle. If you want some more detail on the lithium market, but in a nutshell, what happened is lithium prices started to stabilize this last quarter. And as we predicted, 
we thought Albemarle was sandbagging their guidance for full year 2023. And currently, based on that stabilized lithium price, the company is going to perform much better than we think the market originally feared it would. So if investing in mining companies and base material companies is new territory for you, welcome to the wild, wild west. This thing is crazy. These stocks are all over the board, highly tied to what commodity prices are. Nevertheless, this is an interesting play in mining where most of the industry is very mature and thus cyclical, just an up and down roller coaster. And at the end of the roller coaster, you end up in the same station you started at. Albemarle and the lithium industry are unique because they are growth cyclical. The world needs a ton of lithium. It needs a ton of solutions for storing energy so that these new ways of generating electricity that we were just talking about with on and monolithic power have somewhere to go during off-peak hours. So there's somewhere to store that electricity for later usage when maybe there's more demand for electricity and on the energy grid or within a computing system. This is really embodied by the EV industry. The global EV demand outlook remains very high, expected 40% year-over-year growth in 2023. Albemarle did mention that they established an agreement with Ford to supply over 100,000 metric tons of lithium hydroxide from 2026 to 2030. So huge growth in that market, as we know, as we've been covering with many of the companies in the automotive industry. Let's move on to the projects that Albemarle has been working on. Nick, maybe you can tell us a little bit more about those. Yes. So there's always a lot of intrigue in the mining market because mining sites tend to trade hands. Oftentimes, these things are started as some sort of joint venture. And then later on, a company will decide to acquire the rest of the ownership structure of a site from its partners in the JV. And so there's a lot going on here with this. Albemarle, of course, in the news in recent months for trying to make the acquisition of Liontown and announced here more recently, they're going to be acquiring 100% ownership of that Kemerton mine in Western Australia, which is a fantastic asset. Some of their other interests in Western Australia are going to remain a joint venture. A little bit of cash going to trade hands here, but Albemarle has a very strong balance sheet in order to make these acquisitions because really this is a race to increase supply over the next five to 10 years. So Albemarle in a race with others like Sociedad Química y Minera in Chile, we covered the comparison between those two. And then more recently, we talked about the pending merger between Livent and Alchem. Looks like those three are emerging as the top dogs in lithium. We're going to talk more about that early next week. But at the end of the day, Albemarle is a fantastic quarter. We're very happy to have the stock in our portfolio. We bought some more a few months ago. And like I said, we'll talk more about this early next week because I think, Casey, we're interested in increasing our lithium supply exposure in our portfolio. For Albemarle, we are not going to be doing a fair value estimate and valuation for this company just because it's so heavily tied to commodity prices and 
it's difficult to value stocks like this. However, we still like this company, still like this stock. We find it to be extremely reasonable at this point. So we'll provide you an update soon. Okay, Nick, for our bonus round, I'm going to let you talk about Qualcomm. And this company did not have a great earnings report, which was not unexpected. So what are your thoughts on Qualcomm, one of our favorite stocks of 2023? Okay, so Casey, we saw the stock price running up ahead of this quarterly earnings update. It was Q3 for Qualcomm's current fiscal year. So that's the quarter ended in June, calendar year 2023, second quarter. And this was silly. Casey, we already mentioned in our last video update, Qualcomm is not going to see a meaningful rebound in its business until at the earliest Q1 fiscal 2024, which is the fourth quarter of calendar year 2023, October through December of this year. Maybe not until the January to March period of calendar year 2024. So we thought it was ridiculous the market was running the stock up ahead of earnings because they basically reported within their guidance range they actually beat on earnings per share which is notable the sequential guidance for the next quarter is basically going to be flat with what they just reported i'm not sure why anyone is surprised i think this was broadcast pretty clearly at least we thought it was and told you so in our last update we'll delve more into this into more detail again later here within the next few weeks, but that's, I think, the long and the short of it. We do like Qualcomm stock, but that's our style. We're happy to be patient, accumulate shares of this company, and wait for an eventual rebound. We'd rather not chase it. We want to buy it now when it's out of favor and then benefit once everybody else figures out our rebound has started to take root later on. Nick, you want to give us a preview for next week? videos. So I think we will start off next week talking about stocks we're buying for the month of August. So stay tuned for that, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to our earnings roundups this week. This is the busiest week for us for earnings season. So we have a lot of catching up to do, but that's where we'll start next week. What we're seeing out there in the market that leads us to hit the buy button. If you haven't yet, please hit the subscribe button. It helps us out as we continue to try to grow the channel. If you want to stay up to date when the videos actually drop, hit the bell so you're notified. We also post a lot of stuff on the community board. So check that out as well. And we'll see you next week. Take care, everyone.